Hello and welcome to the 4D Athletes Podcast. But before we get started, be sure to sign up for our free course for the parents on how to navigate your kid in sports in the YouTube description. Go to our YouTube channel at 4D Athletes on YouTube, and there it is. You'll be able to sign up right away to help you and your kids have a great experience in sports. Now, let's begin. Welcome to episode number 99 of the 40 Athletes Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jason Holzer, along with Jimmy Huber. Jimmy, it's our last double-digit episode. That means the next one, the century mark. So, longer. Here we go. Here we go. Going to another level. And today, you know, a great way to segue into that is we have a doctor who is an award-winning educator, author of four books, including The Bullied Brain, and she has a PhD in comparative learning. Her name is Dr. Jen Fraser. And what comparative learning is basically takes two topics and she sees how they're intertwined and connected. And she's done that with the brain and bullying. And I don't know about you, but bullying's always been something that's been a part of like our world. And even when I was a kid and, but it seems like it's coming up more now with technology. So this would be an interesting topic to talk about. Yeah. I mean, and we're, you know, we have children at the age, like I have a fourth grader and a first grader at the school my children are at, that's something that, uh, has been mentioned in certain classrooms and my child has experienced a little bit of that. Um, so yeah, I'm very interested as a parent to understand it more, what we can do to not only help in situations of individuals that are bullies, but the people are bullied as well to make it better in those communities. Yeah. What I like what she gets into too, she doesn't just get into the person that's been bullied, but she also helps the person that's doing the bullying as well, because, you know, if you can help them understand what they're doing, that also, you know, help out from that perspective. So I like she takes both sides of it. So we're going to go ahead and bring her on. Dr. Fraser, good morning, and thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jason and Jim, thanks so much for having me. You know, whenever you, uh, and I, I always like to just dive right into things. And when you compare literature on bullying and brain science, you know, what effect is that actually having on our brains? And what's that doing to us when we face a situation from the bullier and the person that's being bullied. How's that, how's that affecting us? Well, I, I was really interested in the research, just as Jim was saying, because I was involved in a bullying situation and I wanted to know what the science was on it. And it amazed me because we are so rarely introduced to brain science. We don't talk about our brains very often. We don't learn about them. We don't teach our kids. It's almost like it's this mysterious landscape within our skull. We can't see it don't talk about it. So when I started to read the research, in all honesty, I was shocked about how much bullying in all its forms. So take it from the most like a microaggression, uh, where maybe you're making an inappropriate joke about someone, or you're making fun of their name, or you're just uh, not inviting someone to something because you don't feel like it, you know, they might feel excluded. I mean, these aren't these aren't major events, and yet they chip away at an individual's brain in serious ways, all the way up to major aggressions that violate uh, the integrity of the self. So what I learned was the neuroscientists and the doctors and the neurobiologists and psychologists and psychiatrists for years, they actually have a very large body of data, um, lots of different research studies on what something like yelling does, for example, to the brain. So yelling in the face, it's a very aggressive act from a brain point of view. It makes the brain feel panicked. It causes all kinds of stress hormones to be released. 
It is um, seen as threatening. And the brain doesn't understand that you're you're face to face with someone who's yelling at you maybe because they're a parent that's maybe you scared your parent by running across the street. Maybe you frustrated your teacher or coach in some way, and they've been trained to think this is an effective method. Well, it's not. It's actually harming the brain. And the damage done to brains, so the physical damage, can be seen on brain scans. It's not a um, sort of a theory out in the in the sky. It's right there. It's visible. These studies show all different kinds of um, changes to the brain based on the fact that the person is being exposed to something like relentless yelling or verbal abuse or constant humiliation or uh, social exclusion. Um, these kinds of things that don't touch the body, you still see them on the brain. Hmm. So how does a doctor, you know, when you think about just, you talk about it could be bullied in school, but it could be even in athletics of so being yelled at and screamed at by a coach, right? Like you talk about it could be at home, you know, the parents getting upset and frustrated and yelling and screaming and that type of stuff. And we look at like myself being at like the age of 50 and, you know, maybe when I was young, there was some bullying that took place and you talk about it affects the brain. How do you go about like individuals might be carrying this through their life? You know, some of the bullying that happened when they're early ages and now it's, it's they're struggling with it at maybe 40, 45 years old. Are there things that can be done to help them get to the root cause of maybe the bullying and how they're behaving at this time in their life? Yeah, it's such an excellent question. It's exactly what I tried to unpack in the book. I looked at all of those different types of behaviors. And I mean, when you look at what the researchers say, they call it a deep, they might say a default neural network. So let's let's imagine I grew up in a household where my parents defaulted to yelling and screaming and putting you down if you, you know, crossed a line or they believed this was effective parenting. So I've grown up with this model and I believe with my children that this is going to be the effective thing to do because I've normalized the behavior, not, not in a conscious way. My brain has actually been wired. And if you looked at it, it would look different from a brain of a child who grew up in a very gentle, mindful, thoughtful, talking through problems kind of home. It would look different. Now, just a quick sidebar. All of our brains are unique. So you're never going to look on a brain scan and see two brains that look the same. They're all unique. They're all shaped by our experience and they're shaped by our practice. So the exciting piece is if our brains are shaped by what we do, not just our environment, then even if you grew up in a toxic environment and it was normalized by your parents, they thought they were doing the best thing, but it's actually been really harmful for you. And you don't want to repeat the cycle with your own kids or as a coach, you don't want to repeat the cycle with your athletes, then you have to work really hard to unwire what's being sort of shaped and sculpted into your brain and replace it with new neural networks that are about, let's say, for example, you want to replace a very bullying sort of wired brain because that's how you were taught and you want to replace it with an empathic brain. So a brain that uses theory of mind to get to the head of the athlete or the head of the child and say, okay, just a second, I see you doing something. I'm trying to figure out why. Can you share with me what you're thinking when you do X, Y, or Z? And, you know, you start to really hone in on getting them to work with you. And you have this kind of collaboration and partnership to help them improve. Or if it's your own kid at home, be safer or more respectful or whatever you're striving to do. And that really, that is the breakthrough in the book. Many people don't know we have what's called neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity means at any age, the 40-year-old, the 50-year-old, 
until the very last day you're on the planet. You can change your brain by what you practice. So everyone listening to this, our entire audience, every single one of them can say to themselves, whoa, I really don't like how I do something. I don't like how I eat chocolate cake every single morning for breakfast, or I don't like how I have a tendency to skip my run on Saturdays and just watch Netflix. How, how should I go about changing that? Well, you've got to start working from the inside out and start working with your brain to change your practice. And then literally you are changing your brain. It could be seen on a brain scan. You know, Dr. Frazier, you know, I was always wondering about this because a lot of times coaches are, they'll say, you know, well, empathy is weak or, you know, you're not going to be able to get the most out of your athletes or, you know, that kind of thing, because there's an old school approach of like, you know, a drill sergeant or like, you know, high level accountability, which I think high level accountability is key, but how do you uh, become empathetic, but still assertive and, you know, demanding, but you're not demeaning them, right? How do you have that assertive voice that's not yelling, but, you know, you're, you're holding kids accountable, you're making them better, you want, and, and you come across as kids understand like, hey, he's doing this in the best interest of myself. He's not just yelling at me to get me to do something out of fear. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, so I always use as an example for this, I talk about John Wooden and I talk about Phil Jackson. So we have to have coaches say to themselves, okay, well, just a second, John Wooden was a literature teacher before he became a coach and he used empathy. That was his secret power with his athletes. What he did was try and find the athlete that really responded to a kind of aggressive manifestation, yelling and ranting and raving and, and being super direct. Like there's athletes that respond to that. That works for them, but it doesn't work for everybody. So the, his great uh, superpower was to say, to and just to remind everyone, sometimes people mix empathy up with sympathy. Empathy is when you uh, walk in someone else's shoes. Empathy is when you try to see the world through their point of view. You try to understand their feelings, their intentions, and their thoughts. So really what you're doing is opening your own mind up. You're not walking in with all your own beliefs and assumptions and, and plans. You're actually opening up your mind to someone else's mind so that you can best reach them. So this is what John Wooden did. And as we all know, he was ridiculously successful. So then let's flip over to Phil Jackson, another like breathtakingly successful coach. He didn't use empathy um, in the same way as John Wooden. He used mindfulness and he had a special mindfulness coach um, who George Mumford, who worked with his athletes. So George Mumford worked with Michael Jordan. He worked uh, with the late Kobe Bryant. And what he did was help these athletes develop a flow state. So it's the opposite of a coach on the sidelines screaming and yelling, um, which is very, very, from a brain point of view, that's very distracting. If you want a brain to be able to enter into flow or concentrate or be empathic with their own teammates, or tuned into trying to figure out what's the intention of the opposition, you know, your opposing team, well, you've got to let that brain do its thing. It's in performance mode, right? When it's playing a game, it's on a practice. So you let that brain go into flow. And if you do a lot of mindfulness training, that's exactly what you can achieve with brains. And so, you know, when a coach says, well, if I'm not able to be aggressive and if I can't be demanding and, and really try and, you know, take the potential right out of my athletes, then you've got, to, you've got to look at these models and go, well, why was this so successful? You're saying it doesn't work, but it worked for them. When you talk about that, like our, our brains, you know, through our environments, our experiences have been formed, right? 
and you talk about the, the new neural networks, right? That you can you can build and neuroplasticity, how your brain can continue to develop and evolve. But you mentioned that, like, say, say for example, like, you know, somebody's growing up in these environments and, and they get angry easily, right? Uh, they react instead of respond in a calm way. What are like practices and exercise when you talk about routines that someone can do to start shifting their brain and changing those neural networks more in a certain way that they can respond more calmly? Yeah. So. What I try to do when I'm working with um, adults, but I also use this with kids, is when you are aggressive, when you have that big reaction, and it happens to all of us. I mean, I don't know a single parent on the planet who hasn't yelled at their kids. So it's not that you don't love your kids more than anything. It's just that sometimes you lose it and you, you get aggressive. And then if you're a thoughtful parent or a parent who wants to keep very connected and, and maintain the trust of your child, you go and apologize. You say, I acted out. I reacted in a terrible way and I'm, I'm sorry. But what you have to understand from the inside of yourself and what you can teach your children is like if they saw a kid at school who was bullying, for example, what they need to understand is that individual's uh, sympathetic nervous system has gotten activated. Now, the sympathetic nervous system gets activated when we're threatened. So when, when the brain feels afraid, without us, this isn't conscious. And this is why it's a hard thing to do. It takes work. I don't want to present anything today like it's a quick fix. It's like getting into physical shape. It's incredibly hard work. You can change your brain in six months. Same thing as you can get unbelievably fit in six months, right? but it's hard work, it's daily practice, and it's pushing through a lot of barriers. So what happens is your sympathetic nervous system gets activated and the brain is pumping full of adrenaline and cortisol and it's unconscious and your, your body is changing, you're literally pumping oxygenated blood up into your brain so it can make faster, better decisions. Your body is preparing you, your brain is preparing you for three things, fight, and that's the aggressive reaction. And you can easily get activated by that if you've grown up in a threatening environment because your brain is, it's gotten hypervigilant. It's gotten hyper alert. It's always looking for the threat and it'll find a threat out of something that a normal, not, I don't want to use normal, but a, a person who hasn't grown up in a very threatening environment doesn't have that reaction. So classic example is the guy sitting in a bar and he's drinking a beer and he, he turns to, to the person sitting next to him and goes, you looking at me? And the person's like, what? No, I was reading the menu. Like, what is it with you? That's a person who's got a super hyper vigilant brain and it's not their fault. They've got an amygdala. You can see it on a brain scan. There's a really interesting study uh, down in the UK where they looked at the um, brains of individuals who had murdered somebody. And that what they found was in many cases, they had an enlarged amygdala and the amygdala, if we can separate parts of the brain out, which is sort of artificial because it works as a big network, but for the sake of people like ourselves who aren't scientists having this conversation, the amygdala is like a watchtower. It's the threat um, detector of the brain and it does many other things, but so it's watching. So you imagine the guy in the bar, he's got an enlarged amygdala he puts tons of brain resources into it, which take resources away from creativity and empathy and problem solving and memory, because a lot of energy is going into where's the next attack coming from? Now, it's not his fault. 
you can tell right away with someone like that. They grew up in an environment, their brain got formed and shaped and wired in an environment where their only chance of survival was to be ready for attack and ready to fight back because that's the kind of place they grew up in, whether it's their home or their neighborhood or their school. So there's two other reactions you can have and people have different reactions to these things. You can have fight, that's the very aggressive brain. Can you change it? Absolutely. Then you've got flight, the kid that runs away, the kid body and brain prime you to escape the predator and then freeze the paralyzed response like a rabbit that doesn't move a muscle with the hope that the predator doesn't see them in the grass. Human beings are very much these, we are creatures in this animalistic way. Our brains are evolved, very similar to creatures and we manifest the same behaviors. So what I try and get kids to understand is to say, look, when you see somebody bullying, you don't have to give them a bunch of power. What you're actually seeing is somebody who's very threatened. So if you saw a cat and all of its fur was puffed out and it was hissing at you or a dog and it had its hair, the fur was turned up on its back and it wasn't wagging its tail and it was trying to meet your eyes and it was growling and baring its teeth. That's what a bully's like. It's somebody who is very threatened, just like an animal. Now, Dogs get aggressive like that when they've been hurt, usually. They, a dog isn't born an aggressive creature. We know for a fact, and it's common knowledge, and we understand dogs this way, they get like this when they come from abuse, usually. Well, you got to say to your kids, even though it's a tough conversation, when you see a kid behaving that way, you got to know that they probably aren't coming from a safe, happy place, or they wouldn't be manifesting that kind of behavior. You need to get them help. You don't go tell the teacher because this is a bad child who needs discipline, you go tell the teacher because that kid's in, in trouble and needs help and probably his family or her family needs help. So when you say that, like it, it takes hard work to, you know, like it's about six months to train the body, but like six months to retrain the mind. So is that like routines daily of, you know, breath work, mindfulness type, meditation, visualization, uh, affirming words to yourself? What What is it that you've seen people do that within six months, their, their brain, you know, whether a scan, it changes so dramatically over that time. Um, you just, you just named, and it's so interesting because it's so much like athletic performance. You just named some of the best techniques. Um, one of the things that I do in my book, so my, I structured my book so that even though it's discussing some pretty hard information to take in, like upsetting information, because we learn how much, we live in a normalized bullying climate. We live in a, a world that enables and normalizes abuse. And so it's pretty upsetting to find out just how damaging it is to the brain. But I build into the book every step of the way um, exercises that are grounded in science. They're evidence-based exercises for how to change your brain over the course of the six months into something that is more full of desired neural networks, like the ways you want to be in the world. And so visualization is a big one. I use, um, rather than affirming words, I try and get my readers or people that I consult with, I get them to talk to their brain. And it sounds a little bit funny, but just stay with me for a second. So um, we have a tendency, we're very visual creatures, human beings, we, we ignore things we can't see. So we, we've created a society that 
can't see the brain, so doesn't talk about it. So I get my people, my clients, to uh, get a piece of paper or however they want to do it, close their eyes and visualize. Um, people have their different methods and start to see their brain and then start to talk to it. So the more you say to your brain that the mind is in charge and you tell your brain to stand down, that you're safe, the better it's going to be able to handle a situation. So let's pretend. Um, so one of the things I do at schools is I work on de-escalation. So imagine you have a teacher and the kid is being incredibly rude and actually aggressive. So as we know, that's going to activate automatically. That's going to activate the teacher's sympathetic nervous system. Now, the opposite of the sympathetic nervous system is the parasympathetic nervous system. Sorry for the big terminology, but just to remember what the, the neuroscientists call this state, rest and digest. That's when you're mindful. That's when you're doing your deep breathing. That's when you're feeling safe. That's when you feel grounded in your body. Maybe you're in nature, maybe you're in motion, but this is when you're communing with yourself. You're in a very highly responsive state or a flow state. You're not getting, you're not reactive. So sympathetic is reactive and it's a brilliant part of the brain and body. It's how we stay alive. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't survive. So I don't want to make it a negative. It's not, but we need to learn how to manage it. So how do you de-escalate a situation with a student? You have to practice. So it can't just happen in the hot cognition moment when you confront and the kid's gotten activated in some way, which then activates you. Next thing you know, you have a crisis. You have to start talking to your students or your athletes every single day. So you take five minutes out of practice and you say, you know what? We're all going to practice deep breathing and we're all going to develop a code word for hot cognition moments when all of a sudden there's an escalation, you know, something might go wrong, like could be anything. What is our code word going to be? And maybe the code word is um, empathy. Let's use empathy or we could use compassion or we could use um, uh, de-escalation or we could use respect. But so when the kid gets, you know, ramped up and they have less control than we do. So we have to be the leaders in this because the, the adolescent brain does not mature. It doesn't have a fully matured uh, prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that really integrates emotions and thinks about consequences. It's called the CEO of the brain. It's not mature until 24 or 25. So this is why with adolescents, you want to yell at them, you know, what were you thinking? And the adolescent is like, wasn't thinking. And that's a fair answer because they can't think. They don't think like adults do. So, okay, imagine escalation. You practice this every day. So when it actually happens, you got your code word, you're ready to go. You confront the kid who's, let's say they've been, let's say they hurt somebody or they're, they're putting you down, embarrassing you in front of the team, whatever they're doing. They're doing something aggressive and, and out of character, whatever. And yet you, you look at them and you, you just say, you know, meet my eyes. Let's look at each other's eyes for a second. That's the seat of empathy. Look in my eyes. I see you and I see you're furious and I respect it. I see you're threatened and I respect that. What's our word? Our word's empathy. This is about you and me. It's about relationship. It's about connection. I'm here for you. What can we do to like burn this off? Do you want to go for a run? Do you need to just get out of this space? come back to me when your sympathetic nervous system's calmed right back down again and we'll we'll figure out a way to support you like why can't we have those conversations why do you have to start you know disrespecting the kid because your own ego is is actually threatened you know we don't have to do it that way 
that's really interesting too. You know, it's uh, I'm sure you probably heard the phrase of like hurt people hurt people, right? So, you know, by using empathy, and then are there some questions you can ask like your your players or kids, and maybe kind of help you develop a sense of empathy to maybe give you some insights where it's you know easier for them to open up and you kind of understand like, oh, I I don't condone this behavior, but I understand what they're doing and here's how I can help de-escalate it. Like there's there certain ways you can get curious to better learn more about people you're working with or, or coaching. Yeah. I use um what I what I do with young people, um, especially, you know, 13 year olds up or 12 up, you can talk I I use the analogy of a car because they're excited about driving. Driving represents independence and being an adult to them. It's, it's a very desired thing. So you catch their attention right away when you talk about you, you're like a car. Let's use that analogy. But the other fascinating thing is the neuroscientists use the car to talk about the adolescent brain. And what they say is, and what adults have to understand and kids have to understand, is that the adolescent brain is like a... Um, racing car. It can go from zero to 60 in one second. So it's very impulsive. It's very emotional. It can go from laughing and having fun with its friends to being suddenly rude and aggressive. Like, And it's kind of out of it, the person's control. They're not choosing that behavior in the way that adults choose their behavior. So it's got race car acceleration and it's got the brakes of a bicycle. That's the problem with the adolescent brain. And that's why they need more than children. We have a tendency, we look at children and because we're so visual, we see small vulnerable people that need our care. We look at adolescents and we're like, oh, those are adults. They, you know, they look exactly like us pretty much, maybe a better version, but they're adults. Well, no, they're not. They're not mature until 24. So when you see an adolescent, you have to remind yourself they've got this huge problem. They've got this incredibly activated emotional part of the brain matched with a CEO who's not mature. That's the, the brakes of a bicycle. So they're not good at thinking through. They're not good at being rational. They're not good at managing their emotions. They're not good at managing impulsivity. They're enormously influenced by peers and they can't help it. All of this is like, it's the same thing as hormones. Their brains at this time are being affected by hormones, endocrinology, and evolution. The adolescent brain is wired to leave the family cave. They don't want to walk away necessarily from their parents or their parents' values or the home or spending time with their parents or their coaches or teachers. They're being driven to do it by evolution. Evolution tells them they got to get out of the family cave they got to leave the safety of the fire and go find another tribe with whom they can procreate. That is the peers. So they are driven without even being no, not even knowing it to go to the peers. They're big risk takers and they're big reward seekers. And the brain is doing that to give them that the courage to leave home, basically. So this is what we're contending with. You put a kid in a car. It's so dangerous. The brain knows nothing about cars. It doesn't understand that they're death traps, essentially, for this evolutionary brain. They think these kids are out on the Serengeti with a bow and arrow, you know, <clears throat> seeking a new tribe. Well, they're not. They're in a car. And the leading cause of death, as you know, in our youth populations is car accidents. And that could be prevented if we taught them about their brains. So what I do, sorry, this is a long-winded answer to my the question. The answer to the question is I teach kids that the brain is what powers their car. It is powerful. It's incredible, actually. 
but it never is in the driver's seat. You always put the mind in the driver's seat and the mind tells the brain where you're going, where you're turning and why. And so when you start to develop those conversations with the brain, we can do it as adults, but we can teach our kids to do it too. That's when you start to develop the muscle of self-regulation. And although our kids are led to believe, and we as parents are led to believe that academics are the key to success, it's not true. If you look at the research, the greatest predictor of success for a child in life is self-regulation. So if we can teach our kids that through athletics, teach them through uh, school and at home, that this is what, you know, and, and we can role model it. And we can also say, okay, I wasn't very self-regulated there. Help me next time. You know, I, I don't want to act out like that, but it takes work to be self-regulated. So, you know, something, you know, I realized when young kids that I have is going to school can be challenging, right? Um, you know, like I said, you're in environments and different kids there and uh, you might get picked on and that can take place. So something recently happened in our household is my wife, we started noticing one of my sons was kind of like being not very nice to my other son. And so she decided to get him out of school early, kind of have a little, you know, date with mommy. And she started getting curious and asking questions and found out that he was kind of being picked on at school a little bit. So he was kind of taken out on his brother because he felt like he could. So are there things that um, that as parents we can do more to really be aware, to investigate, to ask questions, to, to understand like what's going on with our, our children when they might be struggling at school through bullying or things that are happening, we don't even know. Right. And then all of a sudden you hear about people, you know, committing suicide or doing things that, you know, to their, their bodies or harming themselves. Are there things we can do a better job as parents to understand it and communicate with our kids and help them through those processes? Well, I mean, what your wife did, of course, was brilliant. So you watch the behavior she doesn't discipline her child for being a bully or bullying his sibling. She gets curious and she gives him space and time and safety to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with trusted parent who's, who's being empathic. Hey, I'm trying to get into your head. What's going on? Like, how can I, how can I support you? You're not acting like yourself. Like, are you okay? Like, why, why are you being aggressive? Um, I mean, that's just brilliant, right? That's fantastic parenting. One more step you could do, I think, especially as kids get older, um, is to be proactive. So here you are, you know, my, I have two boys and my, I found, I was going to say at the dinner table, but then I was like, no kids talk at the dinner table. Why would I say something so silly? <laughs> um, my kids would talk, my boys would talk when I was driving. And I, I've thought a lot about that. It's because they couldn't see me. It was profile to profile. So it made them feel less vulnerable to be able to talk about something really difficult. And it also saved them from seeing my emotional reaction. No, no mom or dad wants to hear their kids being bullied. But you have to try and find that, like try not to mirror back to them the distress of it all. Like be more the, the kind of calm, okay, let's problem solve together. What are we going to do about this? Um, anyway, so the one opportunity we have, I think, as parents that we could do better, I feel like some, it's something I didn't do a good job at as a parent was be proactive. And so it's something I've, I've written about, actually, I write a regular blog for psychology today called The Bullied Brain. And one of my articles is about teaching kids. And again, this is 
makes us feel uncomfortable. But I think we should be teaching kids about things like self-harm and just saying, hey, you know, do you have you ever seen kids doing that kind of thing? And why do you think they do it? And have you ever had an impulse or, you know, that sort of thing? Like that's a hard conversation to have. But if you if you give kids vocabulary and you give them um, an understanding that it's not going to make you self-destruct or think that or panic or do something drastic, um, they start to be able to find a vocabulary and way to express it. And I mean, from a neuroscience point of view, it's really interesting to me that kids can't, or the brain, so especially young brains that have very little experience on the planet, brains can't understand something unless they have the language to identify it and speak about it. Literally, they call it emotion concepts. So you can't understand that an adult might be abusive. And this is a hard conversation to have with kids, but it's a necessary one. Starting on the first day they join any type of organized activity, you need to start giving them a vocabulary that's age appropriate for vast majority of adults you're ever going to meet and deal with care about you. Their, their intentions are good. You can trust them. But there is one or two possibly that you will encounter in your life. They will be in a position of power and trust but you can't trust them. They're dangerous. Here's some of the signs that you look for. And that conversation gets more and more sophisticated all the way up until our, our kids are, are adults and launched into the world. Imagine how much safer kids would be if we taught them about really unpleasant, scary things like adults who manipulate and are abusive, either emotionally, physically, or sexually. And so, yeah, being proactive, I think, is a key. What do you suggest? So like when your child says, yeah, I've been bullied or this is going on with this kid or whatever, and you know, that the daddy bear, the mama bear wants to go up and say, okay, I'll knock that kid. You know, you're <laughs> my kid. You better watch out. Right. I'll give you one, two. And you know, you can't do that. Right. Uh, but what are strategies? Because sometimes, you know, kids can be bigger, can be stronger and you, your kid's fearful of the interactions or whatever it is. What are things like tips and strategies that you can give the parents to maybe help guide their children that are being bullied in school, things they can do to help get through it? Well, one of the things, if I was going to do everything all over again, um, I would teach my own kids and I, I work with uh, schools this way. I say to kids that they need to rethink what bullying is like what's actually happening. So Thing number one is in our society, we've trained our kids to believe that as targets, um, they are in a power imbalance with the bully. That's not true. Our children are in a massive power imbalance with adults, especially adults who can open doors for them like teachers and coaches um, or are in control of their health like a doctor. Those people have enormous power imbalance with our children, but we don't talk about that. Instead, we give them a false understanding of child bullying. Children who bully other children don't have power. They, they can't open and close doors. They don't assess the child's value in the world. Um, and this is why they do very desperate acts. They lie, they do smear campaigns, they cyber bully, uh, try and ruin their social emotional relationships with others. I mean, these are very desperate bids on the part of the kid who's the bully. And it can be very effective if the target is led to believe that somehow they don't have power. So the first thing that I would teach my kids and what I teach students today when they are encountering that type of aggressive behavior is don't give your power away. 
that kid is manifesting, they're waving a red flag that they're on track for not only mental illness, but potentially criminality. Kids who bully and are enabled in bullying and it's normalized and they're allowed to get away with it. You look at the stats, tell your kids, they end up in the criminal justice system. It's, it's no bonus what they're doing. And the other then as kids get older, I talk about the career situation and, you know, you could get them to look up career, uh, you know, job applications. They will not find a single job out there that's hoping that they are a liar or a bully or aggressive or put people down. What they will find is in all kinds of really fabulous careers, especially in our world where technology is taking over many jobs that used to be for people, um, what they're most looking for is empathy. So what you teach your kid is when you see a child bullying, what they're actually doing is hurting their own brain. They are damaging the empathy neural networks, which is our superpower in their own brain. And as they damage that part of their brain, and it can ultimately be seen on a brain scan, as they damage that part of their brain, they lose the capacity to know what someone else is feeling, thinking, and intending. Now, you tell your kids, babies are born with brains wired for empathy, because that's how they survive. They survive by understanding what the powerful people in their world are thinking and feeling and intending, and then behaving accordingly so that that person, that powerful person, loves them and cares for them for many, many years. We're one of the few species that needs care for, well, up to 24, because our brains aren't mature until then. So, you know, I think having these larger conversations where we also tell the child who's bullying, hey, you know, just so you know, you are obviously acting out. So you saw it with your son. It's a cycle. And it, I can't tell you the number of times that someone has said to me, I found out in later life that the kid that bullied me every day on the school bus and made me cry was being beaten by his dad every day. Of course he was. It's not normal behavior. This is what I mean about mental illness. They're raving, they're waving the red flag. They're showing you publicly that they are unhealthy. There's something wrong. And it really, it's up to the school to intervene and get that family the help they need or social workers, or it's not like allowing the cycle to continue is just a dead end street for the kid that's doing it. So it's a cry for help and the kid on the receiving end of it who then needs to try and pass it off to someone else in their own life, like a, like a younger sibling. You know, Jen, uh, you know, the thing I've always learned about too, is the power of if you are being bullied, but the ability to, you know, not believe what either people are saying or the ability to, to forgive and move forward by not being too attached to what happens to you. Do you have suggestions on being able to like, you know, stop that from being a belief that somebody may say something that you don't like wouldn't enjoy hearing or like, you know, worse, maybe some forgiveness tactics you can do to be able to say, Hey, this isn't my opinion of myself. This is the other person's opinion. And so, you know, just kind of helping raise your awareness on the, on those two strategies. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important for kids to understand that a bullying individual will look for something that they interpret as a vulnerability so because because they're looking for power, they will try and find anything like it can be it's so random, actually, in many cases, but they'll look for something like, oh, it's the new kid at the school. They don't yet have established relationships. That's a good person to target because there won't be people that speak up or stand up for him or her. So inevitably, when kids are new, you find that, that they might be targeted for bullying. That's a typical one. Another thing you can tell kids is 
no matter what the bully says, oftentimes people, and this is true for adults too, think of the workplace, um, people bully people who um, make them feel worse about themselves. So they go after people who are talented. They go after people who have friends. They go after people who you can tell that they're really close with their parents. And this kid might be emotionally neglected, right? So oftentimes um, you can get kids to play a fun reverse game where you look at, oh, they're bullying me um, for being, being a, 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 a mama's boy, let's say. Well, actually, let's turn that inside out because what they're really revealing is they don't have a close attachment with their own mom. Their own mom is pretty absent and they wish they had that. And so they want to remove it from you. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a strength that you have or a talent that they're going after. Um, and yeah, you absolutely. Why? Why would you listen to what a bullying individual says when it's so obvious that it's their problem? Another thing I teach students is when you go to school or you go to sports practice, you're you're excited to learn. Right. You're going there because you want to run around. You want to get better as an athlete. You want to connect with your teammates and your coach. You want to go to school and learn. You're curious. You want to try something different on the playground, whatever. You want to have cool relationships with people if you're a teenager. Um, that's not what bullies feel. What does it mean? Literally, you ask them, what does a bully look for when they get to sport practice? Or what does the bully look for when they get into the locker room or when they get to the school? And you get kids thinking, they'll come up with the answers. They'll say, well, the bully's looking for somebody to target. And then you say, well, why? Like they're missing something. Do you see how they're, it's obsessive compulsive. They are driven to find someone to hurt. That means they're not enjoying sports. They're not enjoying and learning. They're not curious. They're not fulfilled. They're not whole. They need someone to complete them. Are you going to be the person that completes this, this tormented individual? That's not helping them. So absorbing what they say and showing that it hurts you actually doesn't help them. So it's not a really great emotion concept to, to marshal for that situation. What other emotion concepts, language, could you use to respond to that person who's showing that they are like a half person looking for a target to complete them? And you get kids to come up with words and they come up with really different things, but it's empowering them to understand there's always a choice in how you respond to aggression. You know, Dr. Fraser, you mentioned a couple of times brain scans, and I've heard this with the mental health side of it, that, you know, when we get the physical side, they do scans, they MRIs, they do all this type of stuff to look internally, right? But when you go, like you got issues, maybe you know, mental health issues, and you go see a psychologist or a social worker or, you know, somebody, a, a therapist that can help you, but they don't get inside to see the brain. And they don't know what's going on. I've heard like Dr. Amen talk about that. Like, you know, we need more brain scans and we need to see what your brain looks like. Sometimes you can be a 30 year old and have a brain of an 80 year old. You see 60 year olds have brains of 20 year olds. So is there like, is that suggestions of, of individuals getting more like brain scans? And has that become more um, affordable, like insurance or things that people can do? to do something like that, to really see what the brain looks like and how they can maybe do things to get more of a healthy brain? I believe firmly that we're at a tipping point and I believe that that is the future. 
Um, I mean, it's crazy if you think about it. You break your arm, you go to a medical professional and they do an x-ray to get the information they need about how to repair the broken arm. Why in heaven's name would you go to a psychiatrist or psychologist or a doctor and not have a brain scan done to know what's going on in your brain? I mean, surely it's as important as your arm, if not more important. And you know what? I find it a great story for, especially for people interested in athletics and talking about older and younger brains. Um, one of the most interesting examples of this is Tom Brady. And Tom Brady, you know, what is he, 45 now, 46? He competes with 21 and 22-year-old brains and outperforms them. That shouldn't really be happening. But he got interested in brain scans and brain health after having a concussion. And then he started working with his trainer, Alex Guerrero, to develop different ways to keep his, his body and his brain healthy. So there's a great story. So Michael Merzenich, Dr. Michael Merzenich, who's one of the, the greatest, uh, most highly awarded, most internationally renowned neuroscientists uh, in the world alive today, He's an American. Um, he really took my book uh, on as a passion project and he wrote the foreword and he, I just dialogue with him all through the book because everything he shares is just like golden information for us who aren't scientists. And um, he told me a great story where the, he was in the, you know, they're in the lab, all the neuroscientists, they're doing all this work. They're developing a brain training program. And this is an online gamified brain training program designed by neuroscientists. It's called Brain HQ, like Brain Headquarters, Brain HQ. And basically, you can do Brain HQ to avoid getting Alzheimer's. You want to avoid dementia in later life. So they were working with people that were older and at risk for dementia and trying to see, hey, this brain training, does it keep the brain fit? Does it keep it, you know, you go to the brain gym every day, like you go to the the regular gym, the physical gym, and you you stay strong as you get older. You keep your bones strong, muscles, tendons, flexibility, etc. And they found out that indeed it was very, very effective, like crazy effective. All kinds of independent studies. Well, they get a telephone call and it's Alex Guerrero. And he's like, hey, Tom Brady's writing a book and it's, you know, it's the TB12 method. And we just wanted to, you guys do know that Tom does your brain training every day. And the neuroscientists were like, what? And so they all got in a you know, plane and they went off to the gym to talk to Tom and find out why he was using and what he was doing and how it was affecting his performance. And um, there's lots of athletes that use it now, but they don't tell anybody because it gives them a competitive edge, of course, to have this super high functioning brain makes you a better athlete, right? It makes you make faster decisions. It makes you have better peripheral vision. Your working memory for football plays in Tom's case is exceptional, blah, blah. Well, we could all be doing brain training. It's inexpensive and it's it's gamified. Our kids should all be doing it. So I've been working um, to try and help Michael get a research project off the ground whereby we could do he could do a longitudinal study with the neuroscientists starting in grade six, we'd do grade sixes all the way up to grade 12 and have them do brain training to help them avoid all the mental illness that, that surfaces in the adolescent brain phase. That's very, very intensive. That's when we see kids manifest bipolar and depression and anxiety and schizophrenia. This brain training program by keeping their brains super fit could actually protect them. And that's what we want to be able to definitively show trying to get the research dollars to do a big study like that has proven to be challenging, but I believe, I believe it will happen. 
And yes, yeah, so in answer to your question, me being the most long-winded guest you've ever had yeah. on the show, I don't know what's wrong with me today. Um, so in answer to your question, Jim, I believe that getting EEGs, like, it costs about $500. It's going to become a normal part of like, why would we check our kids' ears? Why would we check their eyes? Um, why? Because we want them to be successful at school. We want to put get them on a level playing field. We want them to to be able to know where their weaknesses, get them glasses if they need it or, or hearing aids if they need it. We check their teeth once or twice a year because we know that dental health is key to overall health, right? Why aren't we checking their brains? We could do targeted brain strengthening and help them and, and make them aware like, hey, you've got a just a fabulous brain and you've got like a kind of a, a neural network that's not strong for reading and we know how to strengthen that. Let's do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, all fascinating points, Dr. Frazier. And, uh, you know, Jim, I think what would you say it was Brain HQ? Is that the uh, brain training? Uh, what, is it a website, I guess? Is that what it is? Or it's a, uh, Yeah, you can go to the website, Brain HQ. So just remember Brain Headquarters. You can go to the website. You can try some of the exercises. Um, going back to getting physically fit is hard work. Doing the brain training is hard work. But it's like a kid doing a video game. You keep yeah, thinking. Actually, I've, I've done it, Doc. And it's uh, actually, you can start slow and it speeds up and does mm -hmm. all different games. But it, actually, they have a thing, Tom Brady. There's a Tom Brady section and stuff like that. That yeah. uh, kind of he does and things as well. It's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. And it's, it's that's such a good point because the research is all there. So anybody who's listening going, hey, I want to know more about my brain. The brain research is fascinating on the Brain HQ site. Um, and another thing too, that's I think relevant is the armed forces of America have, have accessed brain HQ for all their people, for their reserves, for their active military, um, and Navy and also, um, veterans, they can access brain HQ, I think through like a library card or something like that. And of course, because it's going to make them safer, but it's also, it can help with PTSD. It can help you if you are training your brain regularly it's like you're helping rehab after traumas after injuries of different kinds it's it's really effective yeah well dr jen you know it's been a fascinating conversation about the brain and you know and bullying and so many awesome uh things and we always finish with the last bit of insight from our guests we have four final questions um the first one is in your opinion what does it mean to win in the game of life That's a really good question. I would say that winning means you have left your life with something better. So whatever it is that you do, you've you've coached kids so that they have better lives. You've taught kids so that they learned more at school. You parented your own kids so that they were able to flourish. Yeah, leaving leaving a legacy of of the planet is better than when you arrived on it. Yeah. Uh, number two, if you could spend time with anyone you admire in sports, passed away, alive, fictional, non-fictional, who would you pick and why would you choose them? I think I'd have to choose Phil Jackson. Um, I would choose Phil Jackson because I'd want to learn more from him about mindfulness and how to harness that. Because I know from the research, like the neuroscientific research on mindfulness is unbelievable so i would i'd want to learn some of uh, phil jackson's 
richer understanding. The other thing that I love about him and I would want to learn more is his connection to Indigenous people and his understanding of how important it is in sport and life to create sacred spaces. And so for his, rather than having the locker room, he created a, a team room that was full of like initiatory Indigenous, um, he was very connected to the Lakota people, um, artifacts that helped his young men understand that they were on a quest. And the quest wasn't really winning. The quest was to be the best team and the best players that they could be in their moment. And I mean, it resulted in, in actual wins, but you can see like your first question, that's what he was teaching them. The, the actual winning was a secondary part of it. So Larry and on to Phil Jackson, what's the best advice that you received from a coach that you've played for or worked for or been around? Hmm. I think the best advice I've ever learned is from Dr. Michael Merzenich. And he's not really a coach, but he's kind of a brain coach, if we can yeah, call sure. him that, brain yeah. coach. And he told me, and it was a very pressing question for me in my personal life. He told me that, because I wanted to know, I said, what is wrong with a brain that's suicidal? What, what would we see? What would be, what, what would an EEG show? Like what is going on with the brain that's suicidal? Because I know in his lab, they can take healthy brains and they can put them into a depressive swamp. And then, I mean, he's won some of the highest awards in the world because he also knows how to take the brain out of that swamp. That's what he works on. And he said, a suicidal brain is a brain that can't answer the question. And so I've been unpacking that ever since. And I write about it in my book and I know it's a hard subject and I know it's deeply personal to you, Jason. So it's okay that we're talking about it, yeah, but exactly. you know, the lungs breathe air. That's what they do. The heart pumps blood all through our system. It's what it does. The brain's job is to make sense of the world. It gets onslaught of data from the inside and the outside environment 24 seven. And it's miraculous thing is it makes sense out of it. When the brain can't make sense of things, when it is given situations in the world that are, you can't answer the question, you can't make meaning. Um, we need to teach people that it's okay to go to a professional, medical professional or a neuroscientist with that and say, look, this is what's going on in my brain. I can't make sense anymore. I don't understand how to answer the question and then get the help that you need. That's the most important thing I've ever learned. And I, I wanna teach that to every single person who feels suicidal ideation, because it's a brain thing. And we don't teach them that. We just leave them in their desperate state. And that is heartbreaking to me. So the last question, Dr. Frazier and Jason, I'm gonna change it a little bit for the episode we had here. If you uh, could only choose one exercise to do, to retrain the brain or train the brain, you know, um, for you know positive brain that allow you to have success in life what would that exercise be and and why it would be um empathy because uh they've understood by they, they had a major breakthrough in neuroscientific studies where instead of just looking at the brain that was actually having something done to it which was being pricked they were pricking the person's hand with a pin so they were in pain um, instead of just studying that brain, which is what they always do, they put observers under brain scans. And the observer is where they started to see the empathy. And they saw that when you watch someone getting their hand 
pricked and it hurts them, you can see they're in pain, the empathy neural networks light up in your brain and it, it causes you to want to help. You want, it's, our, it's the key social fabric of humanity that we want to help somebody when we're healthy, when we see that they're in trouble or in pain or need something, right? That's our compassion. Now, the terrifying thing is if you put a psychopathic brain, narcissist, Machiavellian or psychopath, you put a brain like that under a brain scanner and they observe someone getting hurt, no empathy neural network lights up. The emotional center in their brain doesn't activate. It's extinguished. And you've got to understand in most cases, that part of the brain has been so brutally damaged by whatever is being done to them that it's gone. It's not lighting up. The two parts of the brain that light up in the psychopathic brain are language and cognition. Think about a psychopath. They are unbelievable. They're pathological liars. They're manipulators. They will do anything to get anywhere or achieve anything. They don't care who falls beneath them and gets trampled. That is that brain. Now, I think that's the biggest risk we have to humanity and to the planet. And so what brain exercise should all of us be working and having our kids do and never let go of is our empathy. So when you say that, I, got, I do have one question to layer onto that. So say I'm someone, I hear you and say empathy. I do want to have more empathy, right? I, I want that. What is something I can do on a daily basis that can compound over time that can help develop empathy in me? Well, first you put the mind in the driver's seat. You can't let the brain drive the car, okay? So we put the brain into its proper position as the engine. And the mind says, and it's usually a good idea to do deep breathing. When you do deep breathing from the diaphragm, like from the lower belly, you are communicating to your brain that you're safe. It's as simple as that. That's why deep breathing in mindfulness is critical. What you're doing is telling the brain, it can go, the whole system can go into rest and digest, which is the advanced state we want to be in when we want to do something like harness our empathy. Okay, so first of all, the brain needs to know it's safe. So you do the deep breathing for several minutes. You, you center your body. You feel your, the weight of yourself in the world. Close your eyes or... You can do it in any way you want. I, I actually, in all honesty, I do all my mindfulness moving. I'm not good at sitting still. I need to be moving. And I do all my visualization and talk to the brain and the breathing and everything in movement in while walking. But lots of people like to sit still. So whichever way you do it, it's unique to you. And then you start to actually say to yourself, um, I'm looking at the person and maybe you imagine somebody very intensely, first of all, that you love. So your child, your partner, or someone, that you, an athlete that you care about, and you imagine them being hurt. And then you try and feel what it feels like. Are you mirroring that? Is, is the part of your brain that's about um, feeling their pain, walking in their shoes. Imagine someone that you love like that, poverty stricken, and they don't have a shelter. Well, are you walking in their shoes? Do you know what that feels like? And then really developing it. Maybe somebody who's a little bit dangerous in your world. Can you really get into what they're intending? What are you looking at? What gestures show you? What language do they use? What facial expressions? What tone of voice? Like you just want to become highly sensitized to how am I reading other human beings in my world? Um, and, and am I projecting onto them? Am I projecting threatfulness that doesn't really exist. Like, what am I using as my measure to say this individual threatens me? And then, okay, here's a super important piece to this. 
I wrote an article about this for Psychology Today because what is so tricky about human empathy is that we tend to empathize with people that resemble us. So I'm going to empathize more with a middle-aged woman who's educated and had was given opportunities and likes to talk about ideas more than I'm going to empathize with a nine-year-old from Mexico who grew up in poverty. And I might just start actually blaming that kid and saying, you know, he's he's very disrespectful and inarticulate. I just don't like the way he acts at all. Well, that's not empathetic. I'm not, I'm not imagining, I'm not walking in the shoes of that kid. So the key thing you need to know about empathy is if you really want to get good at it, you need to imagine people that aren't like you. And how do you understand their life and their intentions and why they act the way they do? And you, it's really just, I mean, think of how important this is in the career world or how important it is for a leader. The more you know about what people think, intend and feel, the more you can work effectively with them and lead them. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Jin, so many great things, especially thank you for that last piece of it as well and the empathy piece. Um, how can people, where can people find your book? How can they learn more about you? Um, social media handles, website, you name it. Where can they learn more about uh, Dr. Jen Fraser and the Bullied Brain? Um, my website is bulliedbrain.com. Um, there's a contact form there if you want to actually um, reach out to me on email. So bulliedbrain.com. My book is everywhere, but it's it's easy to get on Amazon, uh, The Evil Empire. So amazon.com. And uh, yeah, it's Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. I mean, we always drop, because it's so wordy, we drop the, the subtitle, but really that's the thrust of the book. It's written for anybody. People describe it as a, a page turner on neuroscience. So it's really a book for all of us, but it's the, the key right there is heal your scars and restore your health. It's full of activities to do to, to help us all get our brains better. Yeah. Well, again, thank you, Dr. Jin, for joining us today. I uh, look forward to having many more conversations with you in the future, especially as we use sports to build better mental health better emotional intelligence, and overall just healthier society. So thank you again for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, guys. It was a great conversation. Yeah. Talk soon. Well, Jimmy, you know, the uh, way you can train your brain and then help your kids with bullying, I think the empathy piece, too, is, is key there, right? So the more empathize we can get, especially with our athletes as well, you know, like whenever they – I don't know about you, but I've been quick to maybe judge whatever I shouldn't have in the past – but getting more curious, asking more questions, trying to understand, I think will make us also just as good of a coach and, and even parent as well. Well, I, and I, I can relate to what you said, the empty part. You can empathize with people that are kind of similar to you. Right? To you, right, yeah. How many times have we been a coach in a, in a camp or a clinic or something? There's a kid in there that's being disruptive or doing certain things, and you look at them, and like I said, judgmental, and mm -hmm. not maybe you know have an empathy for them to understand really what they're going through. Yeah. Um, so that that really makes me think it's like really trying to get in their shoes. Mm -hmm. What are they going through? What are they experiencing? How can I relate to that? How can I help them through that instead of just being in my own world? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's practice. Right. Every day you get a little bit better. So, well, Jimmy, uh, next week on the show, we have uh, possibly the oldest division one football player. He's actually trying out right now to be the long snapper. He's 57 years old with the goal of being a division one football player. So yeah, that's perfect. Our hundredth episode and uh, the oldest individual. Yeah, that's perfect. There we go. Right? It's kind of like the hundred day of school, you know. So. Yeah, there we go. All right, Jimmy. We'll have a have great day, day and uh, we'll see you soon. All right, take care. Bye, right, bye.